We start a new series today at the lunchtime service. I've called it The Gospel at Work. And that's a little bit of a play on words. This is a midweek ministry and we're in the middle of the working day. And one of our aims here is to encourage and equip people for living as a Christian in the workplace, the gospel at work. This week and for the next six weeks, we're in the book of 1 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the ancient church in Thessalonica, applying some core truths about the gospel to various areas of life. And as we'll see, work is a theme that runs through the whole letter. It's not wrong of us, I don't think, to press into some workplace applications. We'll do that in the coming weeks. But at the same time, this letter is about the gospel at work. That is the active movement of God by his spirit as the good news about Jesus is made known in the world. It's about the changes that take place when that happens. Transformations in thought and word and deed. Radical reframings of our attitudes towards life now and life in eternity to come. The gospel at work. Well, if that's the bird's eye view of where we're going in the coming weeks, uh, let me pull us back down to ground level as we get underway today. Because you may have a question in mind already. I think it's a fair question to ask, an honest question. The question is, does the gospel work? Does it actually work? I mean, we're well aware of the brokenness of the world around us. If we didn't know it before, this pandemic has brought it home to us, hasn't it? And as cases rise and as restrictions ratchet up again, it does make us wonder where God might be in all of this. And in us too. Because if the pandemic has shown up the brokenness of the world out there, it's shown it up in here too, hasn't it? In our hearts. Those frayed tempers, those judgmental thoughts, those selfish instincts, they've all come out. And many of the things that we've relied upon to make the gospel seem plausible to us have been taken away from us. Meeting as church is limited and for many people simply not possible. Friendships are remote and virtual and you don't normally want to say those things about friendships. And maybe, just maybe, some doubt is beginning to creep in whether the gospel really is good news, whether it really does work? Well, that's the question that I think the Apostle Paul is answering as he begins his first letter to the Thessalonians. Does the gospel work? And Paul says, oh yes. Yes, it does. You bet it does. And he shows how in these verses These 10 verses of chapter 1, I think, are one of the most concise summaries of the Christian faith in the whole Bible. And I'm suggesting this lunchtime, this chapter is the Apostle Paul's how-to guide of seeing the gospel at work. We're going to see two things as we go through the chapter. Firstly, how to recognize God's work. And secondly, how to respond to God's work. So we begin verses 
1 to 3, how to recognize God's work. And let me read those verses here. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's worth saying a quick word on the background to this letter. You can read the origin story, if you like, for the Thessalonian church in Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey, and the gospel has got to Europe for the first time. Paul and his co-worker Silas and his protege Timothy make up the core group, and Luke is with them too. He's journaling their exploits. And as they've travelled, they've seen both hunger and hostility. Hunger as people have listened to their message and trusted in the name of Jesus. But hostility as they've faced persecution for their preaching. So to Thessalonica. is a hugely important city in Macedonia, in the top part of Greece. If Athens is London, then Thessalonica is Manchester, maybe. Paul turns up, and he goes to the synagogue, and for three straight Saturdays, he preaches there about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he claims that this Jesus is the Messiah. Hunger and hostility follow. So we can read in Acts 17 verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. A multicultural gathering of Jews and Greeks, men and women, came to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Hunger. But Verse 5, but other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. The accusation against Paul and the others is that they're causing trouble, not least by proclaiming that there is another king to Caesar, the one called Jesus. They become persona non grata. They have to be smuggled out of the town at night. Hostility. And of course, the story could have ended there. In purely human terms, it's not a promising start for a church plant. This eclectic group of young believers in Thessalonica have barely got going in their Christian discipleship. If they're attending Paul's Christianity Explored course, they've only got a few weeks into it. This is the first and the only time that I will equate my colleague Rico Tice with the Apostle Paul. But if you can suspend your disbelief for just a moment, imagine this scene. You've come to All Souls Thessalonica for the first time for a Christianity Explored course. And you've heard an evangelist teaching about a person called Jesus who died to save you from death in your sins, who rose to give you life in glory. And you've become convinced that this good news about him is true. And then the next thing you know, there's a riot being whipped up outside and a baying mob to go with them. So weeks old in your Christian faith, you 
have to smuggle the evangelist out of the side exit of the church, sneak him out of the city in an Uber, send him on with your prayers. What then? Is this game over for God's mission to all souls Thessalonica? Is God's hand no longer on you because his missionary is no longer with you? Has God stopped working among you because things seem so weak and so unpromising? Well, we might think that. And the Thessalonians might have thought that. Which is why Paul's opening lines in his letter here are so striking. He wants the Thessalonians to recognize God's work in them and among them and through them. And notice first in verse 1 how he roots them in the person of God. It's a strange phrase uh, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a line that's carefully crafted to tell them who they are. They are a church, a gathering of diverse but united people, but not just any gathering. They're gathered together in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when the gospel gets to work, that's what the gospel does. It draws together a family of faith, a body of believers who share God the Father as their Father and Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. There is no better place to be found than in the Father and in the Son. There is no security that you could look for that would keep you safer. Nowhere you are held more firmly. Nowhere you are loved more deeply. So no wonder Paul writes, grace and peace to you. Grace is the means by which this happens, the undeserved work of God on our behalf to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, drawing us into a relationship with him. And peace is the goal for which this happens, the end of hostility between us and him, and in its place, a joyful and fruitful life together. That is who the Christian is. But Paul goes on to show what a Christian does. He's heard a report from his colleague Timothy, we'll see in chapter 3, which has prompted his prayers for the Thessalonians. And in fact, he says it three different ways in verses 2 and 3. He gives thanks for the Thessalonians and mentions them in prayer and remembers them before God. News about them means that Paul knows that the gospel has been at work among them. How does he know that? Well, it's because they have been at work. He writes of their faith and love and hope, those three great spiritual virtues. But notice how active those virtues are here. These are not mere feelings or emotions. They are ways of living which flow out into behavior. It's something you can see. In fact, Paul commends the actions before he mentions the virtues that prompt them. So in verse 3, uh, he writes of your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul has heard how these people are living, and so he knows that it is the gospel that is animating them. And I wonder if this is a lesson for us in these times. 
a lesson in how to recognise God's work. Faith looks back. Faith looks back to the promises of God and the fulfilment of them in the coming of the Lord Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. Love looks to the present as we serve God by serving others. As Paul puts it here, it's labour, it's toil, it's giving ourselves out for the sake of those around us. And hope, hope looks forward to the future. As we keep going in hard work and labour now with endurance, we anticipate the return of Christ. Faith, love and hope, they look like work, labour and endurance. The question is, are we able to recognise them? Are we trying to recognise them? Over the years, there's a number of individuals whom I've regularly met up with and caught up on life with and looked at the Bible with. And at the end of a year, we'll often reflect on things, some of the highs and the lows, the joys and the challenges. And I'll often ask them how they feel they've been growing spiritually. A typical response to that will be, well, I don't know. Um, They're surprised to be asked and they're stuck for answers. But we shouldn't be surprised when we're asked about spiritual growth. We should be expecting it. And we shouldn't be scrabbling around for answers. We should be seeing it. And more often than not, it's easier for others to see it in us than for us to see it in ourselves. It's why we ought to make a practice of doing what Paul does here, giving thanks to God for the lives of others and encouraging them with how we've seen the Lord at work in them and through them. I imagine that this will be, for many, a fairly lonely time, spiritually speaking. Those normal places where we come together to share in fellowship and to build one another up are not all available to us at the moment. Like this young church in Thessalonica, it might feel like we've been left on our own too soon or for too long. It's why we must remember who we are in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's why we must learn to recognise God's work in ourselves and in others, seen in our lives as they flow out from our faith and love and hope in the gospel. Well, that's the lion's share of what we're digging into this lunchtime. But let's at least glance over the rest of this chapter in order to draw out our second how-to how to recognise God's work. Secondly, how to respond to God's work. And here, let's start by looking at verses four and five. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. If everything we've said so far has felt a little bit vague, here is where things become concrete. Those great Christian virtues of faith and love and hope, they don't exist in a vacuum and they don't come to us in a vacuum. They are from God and we must receive them in order to put them into practice in our lives. So where does this work of God come from? How do we receive it? 
It comes, Paul says, by word and spirit. Sadly, many in the church have wanted to divide God's word and his spirit and to suggest that they've got two different agendas. But as here in the Bible, the two more often than not come together. What this has meant for the Thessalonian Christians is that their faith has not simply been established on those few sermons given by Paul in the synagogue on those Saturdays when he was with them. He did preach to them. The word of God did come to them and it was essential in their conversion. Faith comes by hearing, as Paul says to the Romans. But it was essential as a work of the Holy Spirit who did a spiritual thing in them by opening their eyes to the truth about Jesus. The word of God never comes to us unaccompanied. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit and breathed out by the Holy Spirit. It comes with his power, real power, to change and transform us. And it means we can share it with full conviction, confident that the word will do its work. The Lord says as much through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, 10, great verse in the Bible. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Well, let's skip ahead to the end of our chapter for just a moment, where we can see the purpose for which God's word has gone out to the Thessalonians. Verse 9 gives us the headline. Uh, Paul writes, They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say that this is the story of every person who has ever come to faith in Jesus. There was an old way of living. It meant worshipping idols. Literally in the world of the Thessalonians, those would have been the Greek and Roman gods whom people sought to placate with offerings so that they would be granted some sort of help in a particular area of life. But of course, those idols were merely a mask for the real spiritual idolatry that each of us has in our hearts. Our basic heart condition is to trust in created things which we form in our image, rather than in the creator who formed us in his image. We take the good things from God and we twist them and turn them against him. And our desire for power and passion and prosperity and much more besides. When we recognize God's work and we respond to it, we cast off those idols which are dead and false, and instead trust in the living and true God. And it is no small thing to be an idol worshipper, you know. Every time we put our trust and hope in something that has been created, we knock God off his rightful place, on his throne as king over his creation. 
It's an act of rebellion, of sedition, and it invites God's wrath. Throughout this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul has one eye always on the future. He's going to keep reminding us that there is a day coming, a day of judgment, because he wants to warn us against it and prepare us for it. Our rebellion against God, our sin against God, warrants his judgment, and it invites his wrath against us as guilty offenders. Which is why God's word in the gospel is such good news. Again, it's like faith, love, and hope. It's concerned with the past, the present, and the future. If we have repented of our past by turning from idols and serve in the present the living and true God, then we can wait with confidence in the future for Jesus the Rescuer at his return. It means as we anticipate the return of Jesus one day, that is a day to look forward to rather than to fear. A day when all the wrongs of the world will be righted. A day of rescue from wrath. When God's word comes to any one of us with conviction, that is what follows. A wholehearted turning around of our lives away from false gods and no hope towards the true God and real hope. And it issues forth in changed lives. See what it's done for the Thessalonians. Uh, First, in verse 5, they've seen how Paul and his companions have lived. Second, in verse 6, they have imitated them and the Lord. Thirdly, in verse 7, as a result, they have become a model to the believers in the region. And fourthly, in verse 8, they have amplified and broadcast God's message, not just in the region, but everywhere. Not bad for a group of Christians so young in their faith whose mentor had to leave partway through their evangelistic course. The gospel at work? They've become famous for it. And that's the power of testimony. I wonder if you found that yourself. As you speak about Jesus to those around you, they may well think that you're strange. And they may disagree with the convictions you hold and even oppose you for them. We'll see that later in this same letter. But nobody can argue with the change that has taken place in the Christian believer through faith in the gospel of grace. That is our story to tell, and it comes backed up with incontrovertible evidence. When we recognize God's work, we receive it by word and spirit. When we respond to it with life-changing transformation, It's not only that our lives are transformed, it's God's megaphone broadcasting the truth of his gospel to a watching world. It might be hard for us to see God's work in action in these days that we're living in, but rest assured that the Lord has not forgotten how to perform this miracle. It feels like hard work for us, It takes labor and toil. It requires endurance beyond ourselves. But as we put the gospel to work in our lives, by living out those virtues of faith and love and hope, he is stirring hearts, preparing them to hear his message as it rings out from us. So in the darkness and in the confusion of these days and weeks ahead, let's not lose courage 
And let's not lose hope. God's word does not return to him empty. As we live for the Lord Jesus and speak of him, the Lord's message stands ready to ring out from us. And more, maybe many more, will come to know the joy of turning from idols and serving God and living now while awaiting his son, the Savior, who rescues us from the coming wrath. To that end, let me pray for us now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news about Jesus, your word and spirit at work in the world. We pray now that you would give us the endurance we need to labor and work in faith and love and hope. And we pray that your word might ring out from us as we seek to serve you by loving others and speaking your great name. So give us help in these days and weeks ahead, we ask for your sake and for the name and honour of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.